Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help me speak clearly. I pray, Lord, that you help us to listen, give us ears to hear the good news about Jesus. Amen. Um, we, we heard just now uh, a few verses from a letter written by a Jewish man called Paul. I don't know how much you know about Paul. He was one of the leaders of the first generation of Christians. So he was someone who was a Christian leader and very active just in the decades immediately after Jesus' death. And he's a very important figure in the kind of Christian movement because he's someone, not only was the first Christian missionary, he brought the, the Christian message to the West. He was also someone who wrote much of the New Testament. Our understanding of the Christian faith is shaped by Paul. And in this letter, these, these verses that we read, this great Christian leader, Paul, talks a little bit about his, his life, his personal testimony, his biography. And in particular, he talks about his previous religious way of life before he was a Christian, before he knew Jesus. And he does a strange thing. In our verses, he lists some of the things he counted as gain in his religious life. Think of it a bit like this. You know, if you imagine you had a religious bank account, and these are the things that Paul thought of as deposits. You know, they, they, they put up the balance. Look with me at, the, at the, uh, just the opening verse in the passage. Uh, on the if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. So here's Paul talking about what he thought were deposits in his religious bank account. And first on the list, Paul says, I belong to the right group of people. He says, look, I'm a Jew. I belong to the group of people who were chosen by God a thousand years ago in the Old Testament. And he goes on to say, look, I wasn't just a kind of nominal Jew. I was a deeply committed, deeply religious Jewish man, committed to the laws and traditions. So look, read on. He says this. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. You kind of hear Paul, it's almost like he's boasting, isn't he? And some big things he's saying here. He's telling us, look, I used to be a Pharisee. Now, I don't know how much you know about the Pharisees. They were the strictest group of Jews in Paul's day. They were, if you like, the ultra-Orthodox group. The stricter than the strict, who could sort of look at everyone else and go, yes, we've done it, and you haven't. And Paul said, I was in that group. And the religious behavior that we know a fair bit about the Pharisees, both from the New Testament and also from uh, material outside the Bible. And the kind of religious behavior that would have characterized Paul's life as a Pharisee would have been things like a very strong commitment to a special diet. If you're a, a, a strict Jew, it's not meant to uh, eat any unclean animals. And mosquitoes are unclean. I don't know if you knew that. And so what they used to do is, before they drank water, in case it was got a mosquito in it, you couldn't see it, they used to strain it through a sieve. There you go. Paul would have done things like that. 
He would have worn special clothes. He would have had a very rigorous kind of life-consuming commitment to a shared value system that the Pharisees as a group embraced. And it was a value system very closely based on the Old Testament law in the Bible. And Paul says, I was really good at that stuff. You know, straining gnats or mosquitoes out of water and wearing special clothes and eating the right foods. I was really, really good at it. As for the righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. So those are the things, as Paul looked back at his religious life, these were the things that he counted as gain. Things that perhaps gained him affirmation and acceptance in his religious community. So that his mates could say about him, Paul, you're a righteous guy, or whatever. You belong in our gang. You meet our criteria. So there's Paul talking about his kind of previous religious life. And at, my, at first glance, you think, okay, that seems quite distant from my life and my experience. You know, there may be some Orthodox Jews amongst us. There may be. But most of us didn't grow up in that kind of environment. But I think we still have our own version of religious behaviour. Let me explain what I mean. So... My first few years at uni, I was a total atheist. In fact, I didn't even know if I was an atheist or not, because I just didn't think about it. But I reckon I was still quite religious. So I belonged to a particular group of people. I think we were, we were the people who were trying to be the in-crowd. It's embarrassing to admit, but we were. And so we had kind of quite strict rules about what you could wear. What kind of sneakers you wore was very important. How high you rolled your trousers up was also very important. I don't know why, but it was. It was also, this is the 1990s, and uh, you may not know this, but the kind of dance music rave thing began in the 1990s. It didn't actually exist before that. Bit of history for you. So I, I was, this was early 1990s at uni, and so the rave scene had arrived. And that was our shared worship experience. And we were religious about it. On Friday nights, that's what we did. We put our sneakers on. And we, we went to our kind of worship experience together at the kind of rave scene. Except it was a quite a nerdy university, so it wasn't very cool. <laughs> and we had our kind of shared values. We were proudly anti-authoritarian, unless it got you in trouble. And we had a big emphasis on sexual freedoms, although it was more in theory than in practice. And what was underlying our kind of... It was a sort of group religious behaviour. Um, what was underlying it was, was really the desire to be affirmed and accepted. You know, to belong to this group of my peers, my mates, and to know that they thought of me, you're a good guy, Tim. You're righteous. We wouldn't use that language, but you're a righteous dude, or whatever. You belong. You can be in our gang. We're accepted. And I reckon the whole world has got their version of that. I live in Brunswick now. I reckon Brunswick's the most religious place in the world. 
People in Brunswick are deeply committed to eating particular foods, coffee and avocados, basically. <laughs> you have to wear Dr. Martins, you have to embrace left-wing progressive values. I live in great fear that one, I live in Brunswick, I, I live in great fear that one day my neighbours can discover that I admire Margaret Thatcher. Please don't tell anyone. <laughs> I could be lynched. But look, kind of, those are the values. That's the religion in Brunswick that you need to embrace if you want to be counted as a, a righteous dude in Brunswick. You know, DMs, coffee, left-wing progressive values. We've all got our little religious behaviour. Perhaps a bit less extreme than Paul's. But we've all got it. As we read on, as we read on, as we come back to the Bible, Paul says something extraordinary about his previous, and quite rude about his previous religious life. Uh, look at me at verse 7. He decided his religious life was worthless. It was worthless. And he actually gave it up in order to gain something better. Verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And he's using quite strong language. He says in verse 8 that he considers all his old religious behavior, his religious life, as garbage. And I want to tell you a secret. The Greek word that's translated as garbage here is actually a bit ruder than that. Uh, uh, you could translate it as crap or shit. You could. If you look it up in the dictionary, it says dumb. And that's, what, that's a pretty extraordinary thing for Paul to say, isn't it? You know, he's, grown up, he's, he, he's grown up as an Orthodox Jew. That he's passionately committed to his religious way of life, a Jew of Jews, a much more devout person than you or I probably ever could be or ever will be. It would have been at the heart of his identity and at the heart of his self-esteem. And here he is, he says this, he says, he counts that way of life as crap. Isn't that an extraordinary thing? And I think a little bit about why Paul says that. Why does he say that? And I think the reason Paul started to think like this was because he started to listen to Jesus. Many of you will have read the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life, and you, you'll have listened to, in, to conversations that he had with the Pharisees, with the super-religious guys. And you'll know that they didn't get on with each other. And here's why. Listen to Jesus critiquing, criticising the Pharisees' religious life. And I put these verses on your piece of paper. Matthew 23, verse 5. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. Does anyone know what a phylactery is? I didn't either. I had to look it up from Wikipedia. It's a leather box, and you put a little piece of the Bible in it. And you actually, devout Orthodox Jews will do it to today. They'll strap it to part of their body. If you're really keen, you strap it to your forehead. And when you pray, you have a little leather box tied 
to your forehead with some Bible verses in it. And he's saying, look, these guys make their phylacteries really big so that people can see them. And there's some, the tassels on their garments were long. I, I, I'll explain that another time. But the point he's making, he's saying that Jesus is saying, look, religious people like to use what they wear to advertise that we are religious. Now, we, uh, we probably don't wear phylacteries or tassels on our clothes, but we might wear special T-shirts with the name of a kind of human rights organisation that I support or I'm protesting about for this right. Or we might wear T-shirts with the name of a Christian group we belong on them. And Jesus is saying look, that one of the reasons we do that is because we want other people to know, hey, I'm religious. I'm a righteous person. We want particularly our own little group, we want their affirmation to hear you're a good guy. We belong. And so we wear t-shirts that advertise, hey, I'm a good guy. Let me read to you a further critique that Jesus makes of religious behaviour. Matthew 6, he says, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. And his point here is it isn't just clothes that we put on to be seen and praised by others. We also put on <coughs> special religious behaviour. We make sure we do it in public. Let me give you an example. It's funny, as a pastor, you see, you see this happen. You see it in yourself. You also see it in your congregation. I remember a few years ago, there were lots of students in my congregation who loved to pray. We do open prayer in church, and they love to get up and pray about asylum seekers uh, and the way that they were being treated by the government and tell everyone about the protests that they were going on against the government's policy on the issue. Oh, I think that's great. I'm glad they were doing that. But what troubled me is there, there were at the time three or four asylum seekers in our congregation. And those students who loved to blow the trumpet about how much they cared about asylum seekers didn't even know. They didn't even bother to get to know these people, the asylum seekers in our own congregation, let alone befriend them, let alone offer them some assistance. We also have lots of international students. And this same group of trumpet blowers were not really very good at taking care of our international students. And what it made it clear was that this vocal group didn't actually care that much about asylum seekers or people trying to find a home in Australia. They just liked to be seen to care about them. And that's what all the prayers, the protest was all about. And Jesus is just, he's just warning us, look, we all, that's in us all. We love to announce to everyone, I'm a righteous guy who cares about this kind of thing. But actually, Jesus sees through it and says, often, often, that kind of behavior is simply motivated by being seen. Look, I want to offer you, give you one uh, last critique that Jesus makes of the religious the religious group, the religious life. Jesus says this in Matthew 26. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Again, 
It's so, does anyone else find it painful reading Jesus' criticism of religious people? You know, especially if you're a Christian person. It cuts to the bone, doesn't it? He exposes what we're really like here. Jesus knows that we often do really small acts of righteousness and we think very highly of ourselves for doing them. While we're completely ignoring or failing to do the much bigger things that really matter. And that's Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees. He's saying, look, you give away one-tenth of your garden herbs, mint, dill, and cumin. Do you you remember under the Old Testament law, you were meant to give away a tenth of everything they had? I imagine most people didn't bother with the garden herbs. But here were the Pharisees going, we strain out mosquitoes, and I give away a tenth of my mint. Do you do that? And Jesus is saying, look, brilliant, well done. But you have neglected justice and genuine love. God's not impressed by giving away your meat. And if I think we're just the same, we focus, we find some little small bit of righteousness that no one else does, and we go do it. You know, I don't know what it might be. You know, I shop for more expensive, ethically sourced clothes. Nothing wrong with doing that. But I wonder if Jesus might say, stop shopping and give your money away to the three million people who are starving in East Africa. That's what real righteousness might look like. Do you see? Do you see how Jesus cuts through our religious behavior? I think that's the, that's the big point. And again and again, that's, the Bible will come back to this. It doesn't matter which religious group we belong to. We might be first century Pharisees, We might be the the 21st century human rights activist in Brunswick. We might be middle-class Christians in the eastern suburbs. But Jesus' point is this. Our religious life is a distortion. It's a failed perversion of what God counts as a good and righteous life. And our religious behavior, it might gain us acceptance and praise from our peers... But God sees through it. And if you want to hear God, and we all long to hear this, if you want to hear God say, if you want to hear the one voice that counts, if you want to hear God's voice say, you're righteous. You can be in my game. You can be included in my family. And what Paul discovered is that his religious life was worthless. It didn't impress God. It didn't qualify him for a righteous verdict from the only person that matters. And that's why Paul says, whatever were gains to me, you know, my whole religious life, I now consider not. I consider it crap. And then Paul introduce, introduces the wonderful good news of the gospel about why Jesus is so much better than religion, than the religious life. And he gives us, he explains that there's an entirely different, that God offers an entirely different approach 
to gaining righteousness, to kind of getting the, the you're a righteous person verdict from God. Look at me at verse 8. Paul says, I consider my old religious life as garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I imagine that some of you understand, you can relate to Paul's experience here. This discovery that Paul's talking about here is a wonderful, freeing, joyful discovery. He realized that my old religious life, it won't work, it won't cut it with God. And he's discovered that there is on offer from Jesus another way, a different way, of getting a righteous verdict from God that works. Paul started to believe in Jesus. Paul started to believe in Jesus. Because the promise that Jesus makes is that if we believe in him, God gives us righteousness that we don't deserve. He counts us as righteous when we're not. That's what the verses say. Look with me again. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. You know, not having a righteousness that I've earned through my religious life. But instead, I now have a righteousness which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God. In other words, it's given as a gift by God. Simply on the basis of faith. And so here's the point Paul's making. His great discovery that he wants to share with you and me. Jesus can give you what our best efforts at a religious life can't. Jesus can give to you for free those precious words from God. You're righteous. You're accepted. You belong in my family. God's family forever. Jesus can give that to you. And he says, all you have to do is believe in him. Trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I hope you can see, therefore, why, why the title of this talk is Jesus is Better Than Religion. He can give you for free what you could never earn. And you don't have to kind of put yourself through, I don't know what it is, you know, mosquito straining experiences to gain it. Jesus will give it to you just as you trust him. The gift of righteousness before God and all that, all its benefits. We don't have time to look at it, but we'll read on. One of the benefits of being counted as righteous by God is resurrection, immortality. That's what Jesus will give you as you put your trust in him. And it's all a gift. No religious behavior required to gain it. Let me finish by giving you a little uh, illustration, a little example. 
Have any of you ever sat outside an exam room, realising you've got two minutes to go before the exam starts, and you have an impending sense of doom? I imagine there's a few people here who know how that feels. There may be some very smug people here who've never felt like that. Most normal human beings have. You know, there's, there's in front of you an exam, but your whole future and all your happiness, what it feels like at the time, that all your future and happiness rests on it. And yet somehow the PlayStation got in the way of your vision, or I don't know what it was. And now it's too late. Imagine being in that situation. And your best friend, somehow, your best friend came up to you and said, don't worry, I will go in and sit the exam for you. And I'll pass. In fact, I'll get 100%. And I'll do it for you. And you don't have to do anything. Just trust me. And I'll do it for you. It would be nice to have friends like that, wouldn't it? That's what Jesus can do, because he loves you, and because he's the Son of God, and he can pass God's righteousness exam. You know, we've all done a massive stuff up on God's righteousness exam. You know, the pass mark is 100%. And our best efforts, as we've seen, they're, they're just a kind of just twisted mess, a distortion of what God counts as good. And Jesus says, don't worry, I'll pass the exam for you. All you've got to do is trust me. Now, we don't have time to talk about it, but uh, it's very, very costly for Jesus to kind of pass God's righteousness exam for us. He has to die on a cross in order to do that. He has to pay, if you like, he has to pay the punishment that our failed exam deserves. But he does that because he loves you. And he sees that we're helpless. He sees that, you know, even when we try to do the right things, we just, we twist it and we distort it. And he sees you're helpless. And because he loves you, he says, I'll be your friend. I'll step in. I'll solve this righteousness problem for you. Because he's the Son of God, he can do it. And that's what's on offer here. I don't know if there are any visitors here tonight, uh, this afternoon. It's a funny little group of people, isn't it? You know, if we're all sitting on desks and squashing in a classroom. You might be thinking, what am I doing here? Well, the reason your friend has invited you is because they know what's on offer here. Jesus is, is offering you a gift, a gift of righteousness. A gift of righteousness that can secure for you eternal life with God. Belonging to God's family and God's people forever. And your friends probably invited you because they know what it's like to have that and they want you to have it too. And so that my, passing, my finishing comment is come back. Come back or if your friend invited you, or someone invited you, grill them. Say, look, tell me more about this. Is it really true? Is this what you believe? Talk to them. And come and find out more. 
I think we're having another talk like this next week. I think I'm doing it this week. <laughs> Come back next week to find out. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for sending Jesus into the world to, to, give, to meet our greatest need, our need for righteousness. Thank you that he was willing to do that at great cost to himself, even to the point of death. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd help each of us here to receive this precious gift, to gain Christ, to be found in him, so that we might have a righteousness that's not our own, but one that comes from you. Amen.